All right. Well, welcome everybody to this um, episode, brand new episode of the uh, Satisfied God podcast. Thank you so much for listening, being out there, um, taking your time to do that. Uh, it um, means a lot to me that you do that and that I'm able to hear from you is the thing that uh, allows me to know that, that that's happening. And those of you who do that and reach out in uh, the many ways that you do, let me just say how much I appreciate it. Um, I can't really say how much, but I can tell you that I do appreciate it. Uh, I am attempting today to do a um, kind of a dual thing of recording the audio and the video at the same time for the podcast. We'll put the video on the YouTube channel. Uh, YouTube's not not much as far as uh, getting uh, views or anything, but it's another avenue. So from time to time, we'll do the video. We do put the audio up there all the time. So you are able to, if you are a YouTube watcher or YouTube viewer, you can uh, listen to the uh, podcast on that as well. It's the Satisfied God podcast uh, YouTube channel. So I hope also that you guys received the letter, uh, that I sent out to you. It's been a, a few days now that I sent it out. So hopefully you received that and were, um, you know, just informed of how much I appreciate you and, and my motivation for continuing to do this podcast. And, uh, again, just wanted to do that and let you guys know. While we're on here, let me also say, uh, Emily Alding, Alding, uh, uh, Aldinger, Aldinger, um, her husband, Arlen, uh, had a pretty serious stroke the other day, a couple of days now, and they flew him to a hospital and you know, didn't really know what to expect as far as how bad and whatever damage may have occurred to the brain. Uh, I heard from Emily today uh, and asked her, you know, what was going on with, with Arlen. And she said that he was, she was seeing signs of improvement, that he did have a stroke. And, um, you know, it's going to be a little while before they know actually what the you know, long-term ramifications of the stroke are. So I'm telling you this because, you know, I want to inform you guys of things for our community, the people that we are united with uh, in Christ and more tightly who are part of this, this small group of people who are uh, hearing this podcast and so those of you who are here listening uh, or will listen to this, I'm asking you to lift uh, Emily, Arlen, the family up in prayer and uh, just keep them in your thoughts, your prayers, and uh, we'll try our best to keep you updated on that situation. So right now, as far as Emily has uh, reached out, he seems to be showing signs of improvement, which is great. Uh, so glad to hear that. My dad had a small stroke at the beginning of the year, and he seems to be back 100%. So we're hoping that that's the, the um, trajectory that Arlen takes as well. So guys, let's get right into it. Today, what I want to do, uh, you know, we've been focusing a lot on the podcast of putting uh, lessons that we've been doing in Romans, uh, not Romans, but Psalms 119. And I hope you've enjoyed those lessons. I really do. They have been a tremendous study for me. Just wonderful, a wonderful way to see how everything you look at just points to Jesus. Everything you go to just declares the same reality and that Christ is the summation of every spiritual reality. And again, <laughs> ignorant of me, of course, but I never thought 
I'd never heard anyone just go through Psalms 119 before. So I never at any moment in time believed that I would be doing a study on it. I didn't really think there was anything there to study. Again, foolish. But I am so happy the Lord directed me in that direction and has been just really helping me and opening my eyes and showing me a beautiful testimony of the newness of life, of the new covenant, of the burden of the first covenant, the burden of the testimony itself. In that whole age, there was a great burden on it, but that burden came to its ultimate uh, relief, uh, the end of the burden, the culmination of the hope and expectation came in the person of Jesus Christ. And you see it so beautifully in, in the wording. And we'll continue on that study till we finish it, uh, the, the psalm. But today, uh, again, when we posted the last uh, Romans episode or lesson, I figured that that would be the last one and that, you know, we would move on to an, maybe another letter, which is kind of what I'm looking at. But um, it seems like the Lord has me looking further going into Romans 9. I don't know how far we'll go into this, but we are going to be reaching here today and introducing some things concerning uh, the ninth chapter of Romans. And again, not knowing how far in the rest of Romans we're going to go, if, if beyond this, we'll see. But I do want to introduce this chapter to you today and just see, or let's see together how this part that has been so, uh, chapter 9, 10, 11, uh, even 12, but 9, 10, and 11 especially, has been so isolated from the previous things that Paul has been saying in this letter to try to point to a uh, a, specializa a specialization by God of a particular group of people, the Jews. And we'll get into all of that, but it can, that can be no further than the truth, uh, no far, not farther from the truth. Uh, as stated in the previous, and we're going to get right into it. As stated in the previous chapter, being our last class and what we talked about in the previous chapter, chapter eight of Romans, Paul speaks to the, to the Roman believers to whom he is writing about the love of God, the love of God that has saved them, that has delivered them from the headship of Adam, from the, from the corruption, from the slavery to an internal law of sin and death, that love that has been given of God that has grasped hold of their soul in the work of salvation is a love from which they cannot ever be separated, no matter what comes. And he enumerates many things. He didn't exhaust them, but he enumerates many things. Uh, death in life enumerated in that, Pro persecution, and all the things that they were at that moment in time being faced with as believers. They These were not prospective struggles that they may go through in the future. These were actual occurrences taking place at that moment by an active group of people who were trying to persecute them and even bring them to death, if possible. Paul knew that very well because he used to be one of them who was doing the persecuting. He persecuted the church thinking that it was what God wanted him to do because according to his perspective at the time, which was a mosaic perspective, a old covenant perspective, was that law observation was God's ultimate aim until righteousness came one day. 
He finally came to understand in the work of the salvation of God, God revealing Christ in his soul. He came to realize that the law was, and I'm doing something I've never, never in my life done, quoting the, the Pope. The Pope said this recently, not a Pope I'm a big fan of, but this Pope said something recently about the, uh, the old covenant, the law uh, of Moses. And he said, it is a journey. It is a journey to an encounter. And that is absolutely true. The law itself was given by God to be a journey, a road, a path, as we've been talking about in uh, Psalms 119, unto an encounter, an encounter with one man, an encounter with one man who embodies the whole of its testimony and amends every aspect of its testimony. He substantiates it in his own being. And it was that that Paul understood in this work of salvation. In the seeing of Jesus, he understood that the law was not the end in itself. Law observation was not the means to righteousness. It was the means to be brought to the one who is righteousness. It was not a way to accomplish. It was to bring the soul to the one who is the full accomplishment of every divine promise, prophecy, covenantal blessing, everything of the inheritance. The law was a way to bring you to the one, one, the perfect life in which all of those things were culminated, consummated, and have been given to the souls by grace, imputed to the soul that believes. So Paul used to be one of those persecuting the church because he thought those who were claiming by faith in Jesus to have received what he had worked so hard under the law to achieve was totally blasphemous. And they deserved to be imprisoned, to be killed, and the sect called Christianity or whatever at that time deserve to be eradicated from the face of the earth. But in this letter, as a man who has experienced such truth, such reality in the person and presence of Christ, now writes to them that this love of God that has brought to their soul a salvation that cannot be taken from them, that nothing is capable of loosening the grip of the grace of God that cleaves to their soul. Not one thing can pluck them out of the hands of the Lord himself. So in the midst of the persecution that they're presently facing, again, presently facing, that persecution cannot diminish an internally sufficient and significant condition called salvation, called justified by grace. And this is important because he's about to address in the rest of this letter those who are accompanied to this persecution that's coming against the Christian. And he wants them to understand, he wants the believers, the Roman Christians, to understand the real true stability that they have in Christ. And he's been doing that this whole time, showing them the work of God that has brought them to such a stable, true, secured, anchored place. And that's why uh, he first establishes the things in this, uh, pointing explicitly here to Romans 8, he first establishes things like uh, these questions that he asks and the uh, answer that he gives. Who is it that can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that can condemn those who are believing? Shall the God who did not withhold his son, not in that son freely give us all things? And he's saying he has given us all things freely. That means by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. He's showing them that there is, they are partakers of everything 
that God had promised, prophesied, and, and covenanted to give to a people, to give to a people. And yes, that was the testimony, absolutely true. But Paul is telling them that everything that God promised, everything that God said he would do, he has done it. And he has done it to those who by faith have received him in their souls. So who? in the light of that type of thing, in the light of a salvation that has given to us all things in union with that son, who is it that can bring any charge, accusation, or condemnation pertaining uh, their soul's condition, their standing before God, any of it? Who can do that? Well, the implied answer is no one, specifically none of those who are trying to do so who were trying to do so, the same ones he was beginning this letter writing to and saying, you who judge the Gentiles, you're no better than they are. Because here's what the law concluded. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Those who by faith have received, have received all things. So no man can condemn us. No man, not even God himself. Why? Because it is God that justifies. It is Christ who died, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, makes intercession for us. That's in he ever liveth, in the fact that he ever lives with an unchangeable, eternal priesthood, standing in the sight of his Father, securing and anchoring for us a salvation. He's making intercession. That's his intercession for us, in that he lives. He is making intercession. He anchors our souls, as Hebrews 6 will say, anchors our souls within the holiest of all, within the veil. He is that anchor that stands there. That's the hope fulfilled. Read, read that part of Hebrews 6, and you'll see what I'm saying. And it's in the light of that reality that Paul will say, who I believe wrote Hebrews at the beginning of chapter six, let us be carried on unto perfection. Let's not try to lay again these foundations as if they need to be laid again. No, let's, let's be brought into that perfect reality, not unto it, but let us allow, let us be being carried on within the realm of this perfect reality, <clears throat> this spiritual reality that God has brought us to that superseded the natural, the external the age of testimony. So, <clears throat> on the line of that, he now begins here in chapter 9 to express to them something concerning those who are persecuting them, and why, really, why. And that's why we have to bring this into Galatians 4 uh, pretty quickly in this consideration here of Romans 9. In the light of what we've read in Romans 8, bringing it into Romans 9, we have to. And you'll see it in a moment when we read it. We have to bring Galatians 4 into this. He's shown them <clears throat> in this letter that they are partakers of the hope that God had when he subjected an entire creation to its own vanity. And remember, vanity means emptiness as to accomplishment, emptiness as to result, not as to effort, but as to the accomplishment, result. See, these believers, by faith, are partakers of the end of the law, which is righteousness. They are the partakers of the spirit of life, the law of righteousness fulfilled in them. Something that the Jews, <coughs> seeking under the law 
have yet to attain and cannot attain while seeking it under the law. And he goes on and says that in these uh, forthcoming chapters. Excuse me for drinking. My allergies are acting up. This will be cleaned up in the audio section. <laughs> you get the raw stuff in the in the video. Um, because the Jews, while while they were boasting of being rightful possessors, true heirs of the blessings, the promises, they had actually presently forfeited their claim upon it to any degree at all. See, the believer who by faith has received Christ has by faith laid hold of what they sought and were yet seeking and what they sought sought by law and assumed themselves to be the rightful possessors of because of their natural lineage lineage as Jews. They believed they had right to it. And those believers who actually had received Christ in their soul by faith and thus had received all the promises, yes and amen, all the blessings spiritually formed and given, Who was the rightful heirs? Who actually was the true possessor of all things? My, my answer to that is, in actuality, neither. The Christian himself is not a possessor, is not a rightful possessor of anything. The Jew, on, on, uh, by themselves, not a rightful possessor of anything. The seed to whom all the promises were made, Christ himself, was the true rightful possessor of every promise and blessing promised of God, everything. It's with him the covenant was ratified and made. It is being found in him that makes men partakers, joint heirs with him of these spiritual blessings. And there's no other way. And see, the claim of the believer to have it by faith and not have to have a law to achieve it because the law couldn't achieve it was an origin of persecution. It was the catalyst for this persecution. Because again, the things they claim right to, the Jews I'm speaking of, the things that the Jews claimed right or the privilege of because they were Jews, are actually given to one seed, not seeds, meaning natural ongoing hereditary seeds or ongoing lineage of a natural uh, group of people. None of that. Not seeds as a many, but I, the seed who is Christ, seed one. And they have to be born of that seed to actually have anything of it at all, anything of the covenant, anything of the inheritance. And just as Ishmael, again, now we're referring to Galatians chapter four, just as Ishmael assumed that he would be possessor, rightful inheritor, that he was, and Ab Abram had the same assumption, that he would be the true promised seed, that he was the promised seed, that he was the one and who was going to receive all the covenantal blessings. God, however, had another seed in mind to whom every promise was made. And that seed was a seed that was far removed from man's capabilities. Remember, God waited until the womb of uh, uh, Sarah was dead, and barren, which was already a thing, but he also waited until Abraham's body was incapable of, of making a child. 
he couldn't do it either. We've already read about that in Galatians 4. I mean, Romans 4. God waited because his seed, the one who is the true possessor of all things, the rightful heir of every promise, was one who was far removed from man's capabilities. One whose coming was the result of a divine act, a miracle wrought. That's salvation. That's Christ himself. Not I, but Christ. That's true concerning this reality. That's the truth of our salvation. That's the truth of this uh, being partakers of an inheritance. It's not I. It's Christ liveth in me. Here's what Galatians 4, and again, again, this is the catalyst for the persecution that is taking place, uh, the hatred that the Jews had toward the Christians. They're claiming by faith to possess what the Jews thought was theirs by law observation and natural lineage. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul would say, Now we, brethren, speaking of those who are born of the Spirit, by faith, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Why? Because we are born of the seed of promise. Go back to Galatians 4, you'll see that is the, is the thing that ties all this together. We don't have time to go into every verse, but this corresponds to what he's already said in chapter 3. Uh, verse 29 of uh, Galatians 4 now, but as then he that was born after the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecutest him that was born after the spirit. Again, looking at the natural Jews, the ones born after the flesh, remember circumcision after the flesh. Now they are the ones persecuting us who are born of the spirit, who have been born of the seed of promise and are therefore partakers of the true inheritance. Who have been blessed covenantally through that birth. They are persecuting those who are born of the Spirit. It is so now, Paul says. Verse 30, nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman, that's the natural Jew, the natural, that's the distinction he's making here, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This does not say that Jews cannot be part of the free, part of the Isaac. But there is something that has to take place for that to be so. And this is the thing Paul is going to say. He is going to say this. Uh, he's not giving them some other way in. There's one door. And the only way to partake of all of the blessings promised of God, prophesied by prophets, spoken of by the fathers, is to be born of this seed, is to be born after the Spirit. You see, the persecution was concerning flesh versus spirit, works. Effort versus faith. So Paul was again stressing that the believer had attained what the others could not attain by the law. They had attained by faith what the Jew could not attain by law. He's going to say that in chapter 10. That was a great part, a great reason, again, catalyst for the persecution they were facing. But Paul's point, referring back to what we're, thing that leads us into chapter 9, the love of God, nothing can separate, persecution, death, nothing. Paul's point here was that no matter how strong the persecution, the condemnation, even if it results in their own death, None of it 
souls capable of bringing any measurable distance between their souls and God's love that has been shed abroad in their heart. And what is the love of God shed abroad in their heart called? Salvation. Christ in you. It, it couldn't stop their participation in the promises, in the inheritance. Because the promises and inheritance is never about them, their efforts, their abilities. It's about the grace of God and the son of God's love who resides in the soul. That's how we become partakers, joint heirs, if you will, with him of all the blessings. The, Paul is writing, and this continues to be the edification of these believers regarding their standing before God, their soul's condition in the sight of God. So, uh, as Paul would state in Galatians chapter 5, after what we just read, stand fast in the liberty. That's what he's trying to say here. Stand fast in the liberty. You have these realities. Don't let them tell you don't. Don't let them claim that they possess something by natural lineage that can only truly be rightfully possessed by a spiritual birth, by a work of God's spirit, the work of grace. So now going into chapter nine, he'll begin to enumerate some of these wonderful things that the Jews had refused to partake of in reality. They had it in promise, but to have it in person. And I mean the personification of those things internally, the person of Christ, they refused it because they refused to come under the headship and submit to the divine headship of the husband that God had called them to marry, the man that he had called them to come under his rule, to be born of the seed of God instead of trying to be the seed of God, to, de to be born of the seed of God and come under that man who would, in his great grace and in his sovereign work, in his own presence, impute to them what the law fell short of with regard to accomplishment. Again, the law kept them working, but it kept them at a distance from its accomplishment because Christ alone is the accomplishment of every jot and tittle, every part of it. So let's reach uh, Romans 9, starting in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Just think about the love this man has for these people. He hasn't thrown them away. He hasn't cast them aside and said, oh, they're just a bunch of reprobates and non-believers. That's not his heart at all. So much so that he's saying the heaviness of his heart, the sorrow in his heart, that he even wished that he could be separated from God if they could be saved. But who are these people? What is the significance of these people? What is the significance Paul understood that maybe we don't? Because it's important. You have to see the significance of what it means. This is a beautiful phrase, who are Israelites. That's a significance that most people don't understand. And I would even be so, I guess, bold to say, that even the Israelites don't understand the significance of what that means, who are Israelites. And you can say, oh, they're a great nation. I don't doubt that at all. I 
I'm all favor for the nation of Israel. Wonderful. But what's the significance of them to be Israelites? What was their significance? Paul saw it. Paul understood it because he was an Israelite. Who were Israelites? Listen to him enumerating these things. To whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came? who is overall God bless forever. Amen. Do you see that? That is a tremendous, tremendous thing that we've just read. And we have to see it in the light of the fact Paul understood the great significance of them being called Israelites, of them being Jews. He saw great significance in it. But their significance was tied inseparably to the one of whom they existed to be a testimony and whom God willed for them to receive and be found in him so that the adoption that he promised them at the very beginning, we'll get into the adoption, would finally be brought to pass in its spiritual and ultimate form. We'll get into that. We'll read those verses, but let's first start here. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Because Paul's addressed this already in the Romans letter. When he says, uh, I'm going to just read from verse, just read verse, uh, I believe one and two. What advantage then has the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Much, verse 2, much every way, much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, let's look at a couple of words here because these are important. I want you to understand this. This has to be seen because we have to understand the significance Paul understood was carried by being a natural Jew, a Jew of the flesh, even, the Israelite. So he asked the question, what advantage do they have because they're Jews? And what profit is there in circumcision? That's a big question. The Jew would say, we have uh, a great advantage overall. In fact, everybody else are sinners. Everybody else are of, of not of God. Every, every other group of people <coughs> are reprobate. We have great advantage as the circumcision. There's great profit. To being circumcised because they would say what that means is we're righteous and they're not we're holy they're not we're separated them to god they're corrupt and full of sin now here's the thing that will also maybe throw us off a little bit paul agrees with the fact that they have a great advantage with the fact that there is a great profit of being a jew and of being circumcised. Great advantage. But both groups that would agree fail to agree 
as to what that means. This is significant. But first, we need to look at a couple of words. The word advantage here, what advantage uh, has the Jew? The word advantage here, uh, the number in Strong's, if you want to look it up, 4053. And it means to have superiority, to have an abundant advantage, exceedingly superfluous, beyond measure. Uh, that, that was from, uh, Strong's. This is from, again, Thayer's means to have a special advantage or a great benefit. The Vines Expository Dictionary says above and above beyond what is superior in in, in, in advantage. So the question is, does being a Jew give you this superior, exceedingly great advantage over the Gentile? Now, again, the Jew would say, absolutely. But they would say, absolutely, because they have their righteous because of the law. Paul says absolutely, but not because they're righteous by the law, but because they were given a, a, a revelation of God's holiness, a divine revelation of his own perfection called the law. Not so that they could apply it and become by that law perfectly righteous, holy, and therefore superior to all other races and creeds and tribes. Paul's knowledge of their advantage is that they had in their midst the God-given revelation of his own perfection that God would use, if they would allow him, to bring them to his son. And in that son, experience internally the spiritual substantiation of that advantage, the spiritual substantiation of the testimony of holiness, they would actually receive the Holy One internally, not just do what God said externally and believe by it, they are holy. There's a different view here. We go back to, and we'll, we'll stay on this, but let's go back for a second to Romans Chapter 2, verse 25, says for, and if you see him sweating here, sweating because it's hot, 90 degrees outside, and it's hot in this building, and it's not cooled off, and it's not cooling off either. <laughs> uh, Romans 2, 25, for circumcision, again, he's asked what is the profit of circumcision, and he said previous in Romans 2, circumcision profiteth, verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. Here it is. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcised, meaning it's worthless. Your circumcision has no profit to it at all because you're a breaker of the law. How do you break the law? I do. I, I fail to do what it says. No, no, no. Paul understood you are a breaker of the law unless you are a spiritual internal partaker of the life of which the law spoke. That means you have to be born of the seed of God to actually be a keeper or doer of the law. Otherwise, you're a breaker of the law because everything that you are by nature and by natural birth is a violation of the holiness prescribed and demanded in that law. And your circumcision in the flesh means absolutely nothing until there is an abounding greater circumcision of the heart that takes place. This is what he's talking about. But see, 
the law was a road paved by God to bring them to that internal circumcision. There was a circumcision of which it spoke in testimony, but it was not that circumcision that God had in mind for its conclusion. God had a heart circumcision that he spoke of in a external fleshly way, but the heart circumcision was always the goal. You see what I'm saying? Where you see the advantage in the external possession and application of it so that you buy it can think you're holy. Paul's understanding of its advantage was you were given this beautiful testimony that was a something God gave you to lead you and guide you as a schoolmaster to one perfect man so that you could submit to his authority, his headship, his rule, be born of his seed and be imputed with his righteousness. All by faith, not of works. Oh, that's beautiful. So, therefore, verse 26 of Romans 2, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, that means if they do what it says externally, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision. Meaning, if you think your righteousness is because you're externally righteous, do what it says. If you screw up, does that make you uncircumcised? Just like if the uncircumcised man does something that the law said is good and holy and righteous, and it demands it, if he lives in that way, is he now circumcised? Verse 27, shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfilled uh, the law, judge thee who by letter and circumcision transgresses the law, for he's not a Jew. Here's the here's part of what we're going to talk about. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Paul's bringing it all where it's supposed to be brought. If you're going to talk about holiness, you got to talk about inward. If you're talking about righteous, you got to talk about inwardly. None of these things are valid points when they're still on the surface and the external. They're only valid when they are validated by their spiritual substance being in you. That's it. The Jew is not one outwardly, neither is circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. Can't get away from that, guys. He is a Jew who is one Inwardly, what is he talking about? The true significance of what he just said, who are Israelites. He's showing them the true significance of that, what it means to be an Israelite, what it means to be a Jew. The true significance was not to perpetually be an external nation that could say, God loves us more. God's intention was, to bring them into a perpetual inward relationship of all spiritual blessings. Every, every spiritual promise and prophecy fulfilled inwardly by the presence of the man in, the, in, the, in view of whom they even existed as a people. A son that they were a testimony of. God's God's hope, his expectation for this people was to be brought into Christ so that they could inwardly partake of what the external law kept them from. See it? He's a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, not in just the application of a written law. And these inward Jews have no praise in men or by men, meaning they can see your works and, and, and applaud them, that they can say how holy you are because how externally holy you appear. No, but God sees the heart. 
God sees the inward parts have been changed, transformed, and full of spiritual reality instead of just full of themselves. Um, but this is the key. For any of these realities to be realities and not just uh, hopes, not just claims, they have to be inwardly wrought and inwardly imputed by God's grace. Hebrews chapter 13, and again, this is just to introduce this guy. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart, listen, the heart be established with grace, not with meats. Meats means the external rituals and ordinances of the law. It's a good thing. And we could go into that phrase, good thing, look it up. It's all through there. We're talking about the good thing concerning what the law promised, demanded, that good thing that was coming. It is a good thing the heart is established with grace. That's the good thing. And that's the good thing that Jesus would say concerning Mary that cannot be taken from her, remember? That's the good thing. Because if your heart is going to be established with meats, drinks, holy days, festivals, touch not, taste not, handle not, if we take this phrase and bring it into Colossians chapter 2, the thing he's warning them against there, you realize he's talking about the ordinances of the law. If, they, if your heart is established in meats, or that it finds its stability and attempts to find its establishment in meats and drinks and all of those external things, you'll realize they have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Who is that? The Jews, those under the law, and none of it's profited them. Go back. What we read? What did we read? What profit? What advantage? Is there at all? There is a great advantage, but not just because you have it. It's because you possess the divine testimony whose point and objective as given of God was to bring you to Christ, to righteousness, not to make you righteous, bring you to righteousness himself. The word profit actually, you know, it means benefit, profit, accomplishment. Is there an accomplishment in circumcision? It's what it is. What profit is the circumcision? What accomplishment is brought about? Again, Paul would say, there is a great advantage there is a great profit here of being the circumcised being a jew and we need to concentrate here because we could look at this you know and in hindsight i guess as christians in hindsight knowing the gospel we can as those who are looking at it in that way as new covenant christians we can say there's no advantage at all. There is no advantage at all because we're all the same. Well, that's true. Paul's wanting to make a greater point, though. Paul's wanting to make a greater point. There's a great advantage in being a Jew and having circumcision because one thing is having circumcision means you have been given this divine revelation of God concerning righteousness, holiness, perfection, everything concerning himself, his own divine beauty, who he is, who, what's his nature? Because it was given to you not to make you anything, but to finally, ultimately keep you first, keep you safe. Go back again, Galatians 3. 
and guide you to the man, guide you to the conclusion, bring you to an inward encounter. The, the, the Gentiles did not have this revelation of God's own person, his own beauty and perfection. They didn't have that. They didn't have that advantage. They didn't have something like circumcision that pointed to a greater circumcision that was of the heart. They didn't have any of that. So there was a great benefit of being a Jew and having this law, but only if you allow the law to do what it was given to you to do, and that is to bring you to the conclusion of its testimony, to bring you to the person who cast that perfect shadow. Otherwise, it will not profit you at all. Because in the midst of it, it concludes you as a person who is bound by sin, death, and corruptibility inwardly. But if you will allow it to do what it was given of God to do, it will bring you to the one who can liberate your soul from that captivity. And that's really what Paul is saying, much in every way. Much in every way. The advantage is great. So we'll stop there, guys. Uh, I know that's probably a bad place to stop, but we've gone long enough. Um, I appreciate your attention and uh, appreciate you being there and listening. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Um, please let me know um, if you have any questions, and uh, we'll We'll talk about it as we always do. Paul is saying to the believers, you have in spirit, in truth, as those who are in Christ, born of the seed of God, you have all things. Adoption, absolute. We're going to talk about it. each one, numerated. We're going to talk about it. Covenant, absolute. Service of God, yep. You have this because you have him. In your soul, he abides, and he abides and makes your soul the dwelling place of every spiritual blessing, every promise, amen. Every prophetic word stamped with all certainty. Now, stand fast in that liberty and set your heart to know and see and grow in the grace that God has given. The life of a believer is one of rest. Our pursuit of God and the knowledge of Christ within us is a pursuit that begins upon the basis of rest because we are those who are in the Sabbath himself. We rest in the assurance that the one who abides in us is made unto us all things pertaining unto life and godliness. And our pursuit is, Father, show me. Open my eyes. Let my soul become aware in the clearest of ways of that which you have done and the gift that you have given so that I may know even as I am known. 
Thanks for listening again, guys. We'll see you next time, or you'll hear me next time. Amen.